Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you guys. If this is your first time here at Hill City, uh, my name is John Wagler. I'm part of this team and uh, just grateful uh, you are here with us. Um, it's spring break, y'all, for some of you guys, not everybody. It's always funny when you get to like a certain age, you're like, it's spring break, and like parents are like, yeah, you know, but when you don't have kids this age, you're kind of like, cool, those days are over. But um, wait, we're in this series called The Death of a King as we're heading into Easter. Easter's only two weeks away. Um, as I said last week, I'd, I'd love for you guys um, to begin praying uh, over the people that you want to invite to Easter. So we'll have three options for Easter at 8, 9, 30, and 11. And um, just begin to pray over, like, inviting them. And uh, we're going to have a special day plan. It'll be just an awesome time uh, to celebrate uh, Jesus rising from the dead, right, which is a pretty big deal. So... Um, so this series, uh, we wanted to talk about the cross for a few weeks together because um, I realized that the, the longer I'm in uh, ministry and the more people I talk to, uh, the reality of, of some of the things that we assume that we know um, aren't as high as w we think they are, right? Like we, we think we know so much about the cross, um, but maybe we don't know as much as we think that we do. And, and so I wanted to take a few weeks to talk about that. And um, because here's the reality of the cross. Um, it is like all throughout culture and has been uh, for such a uh, long time. When you look at um, things like uh, artists in, in, like the, in like the 1200s and stuff, I was looking at different um, paintings and renderings of, of just works of the cross. And because it's been so prevalent within culture for so long, uh, you know, they, in the 1200s, they would have these donors, and what they would do is they would hire or commission artists, and they would do, like, these elaborate paintings of the cross, and within the crowd that would be viewing the, the crucifixion, uh, they would ask the, the, the painter to put, like, their faces, like, in the paintings as a sign of, like, we're so devoted uh, to this idea of the cross. Um, when you look at Gothic cathedrals, if you've ever been in one, the cross is like a prevalent thing architecturally. Um, I actually have a picture of one here that where you begin to see, uh, like even at the top of it, right, like you see like the, the cross shape, um, it was part of the architectural elements. And then if you look on the inside of what it is, everything is cross-shaped. Um, the aisles and, and everything. Why, well, why do they do that? It's because they want the focus to be on the cross when you step in. It's one of the downsides um, to like being in a place like this um, and where architecturally you don't have that same kind of beauty, right, uh, that you see in some of these Gothic cathedrals. Like you walk in um, all over the world, you walk into some of these cathedrals and you're just like, holy cow. Like there's like a the beauty of the creative element that's in there. Um, even in the uh, late 1500s, um, there was a guy named Rubens who was uh, commissioned to do this, this painting about the elevation of the cross. It's a big three-panel painting. It's, it's 16 feet high by 11 feet wide. And um, so you can see this. But it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful painting. And, it's, and um, what they did was, oh, actually, I do have a picture of the, just for perspective as, like, this woman is, like, standing near it. And what they would do in the cathedrals, they would raise it up high um, and so that when you walked in, um, that your eyes were immediately drawn to the elevation of the cross. And so the cross becomes so critical to even just our perspective as we begin to enter into something. Um, the way that we begin to think about it, the way we begin to process this whole thing of the cross. 
And so uh, last week um, we uh, said this, that the cross shapes our mission, vision, values, and identity. Um, that it's a really big deal. Like it shapes our mission, vision, values, and identity. And one of the scenes that we looked at was in Psalm 22, well, well, when Jesus is on the cross and he makes this cry out to, um, to God, he says, my God, my God, why have you uh, forsaken me? Um, and it, when you think about the cross, it's, it's, this, it's, it's like a horrible scene, like how Jesus got up on there and is beaten and flogged and bloodied and, and everything else. And, um, and even in this scene, it's like, man, he was screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's what's interesting about that scene. You know, um, a lot of times we picture the cross being up on a hill, right? It's kind of how we think about it. But really, when people were crucified, they would do it on the road. And, um, and so it wasn't very high. So if, if Jesus were being crucified, um, it would probably be roughly the height I'm at right now. Um, that's how close you would be to the scene. Um, and they would even like do it maybe even like right at ground level so that when people were walking by, it was such a shame-filled thing. It was a gruesome thing. And they wanted people to see um, that when someone got crucified, they wanted people to like see it, see it, not be removed from it. So you could have, um, a lot of times, uh, if you look at like Roman history, there were times where they would crucify like 1,000, 2,000 people on a road. And so people would just be lined, like, up on, on crosses, you know, again, this high. And you just, as you're, like, walking into the city, this is what you saw. And so it was, the, so it was, it was about Roman power. It was, it was to shame people. It was, you know, obviously the ultimate of death. But Jesus up on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we read a scene like that, our first thought is, like, whoa, how could God the Father abandon his son? And what is he feeling? And, and so, and a lot of times people have a hard time with that part of this crucifixion scene because it just doesn't seem right. I've heard some people phrase it as like, oh, it feels like um, spiritual abuse, basically, what, what God the Father is doing to his son. And, and, and so, but we miss out on the little nuance of that part of the story. As I shared last week, that um, they, when it came to the Bible and scripture, they didn't have chapters and verses. And so uh, they wouldn't have said, hey, that's from Psalm 22. Um, the way that they would, would go about in reading any scripture of the Old Testament at that time, they would make a line. So if they were saying like, hey, we want to talk about this psalm, they would say, they would quote a line from the psalm, and then they would draw your attention into what it means. And so that you knew what psalm you guys were going to recite together. And so in this one, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the front end, it feels like whoa, this, this huge thing is happening, but, but really what he's doing is trying to bring their attention to what Psalm 22 says. And so I brought that up last week, but I wanted you to see a couple of the verses um, um, from this psalm because it's, it's such a big deal. In verse 3 it says, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust, and they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So see what he's doing here. He's like, in the most shameful position, he's quoting a psalm that talks about, my God delivers and will not be put to shame. And in verse 24 it says, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering or the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So even in the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like, no, no, God is listening. He has not forgotten him. He's with him in it. 
Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And so you can begin to see that even in that part of the scene, it's like, whoa, whoa, he's just quoting this, this psalm, and, and, and a lot of the people they're seeing it would have, like, known exactly what that psalm said, because they would memorize. And so they would, have been, they would have been thinking about, whoa. What's really in Psalm 22, it's like, yeah, that line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cry out, and that peace is there. But there's all these other things in that psalm that are there that talk about you can trust God. He's going to deliver. He's going to save. That this isn't the end of the story. And so it's a big, big monumental thing that Jesus is doing here um, up on that cross at that point. And so through the cross, what we see is sin being defeated. And now... Why was it defeated? Because Jesus only died for a hot second, right? Like he was like dead and then he rose again. And so we begin to, to see like, oh, wait, at the cross there was something significant that truly was happening. And we can't separate the reality of sin from the cross. Um, a lot of times here in modern uh, theology, um, what can end up happening is people don't want to talk about sin so much. Um, they they want to try and separate the reality of sin from the truth of the cross, which is very problematic because the Bible doesn't do that. And so um, let me give you an example here. In 1 uh, Corinthians 15, Paul, um, who was one of the forefathers of the Christian faith, he writes this letter to the church at Corinth, and he wants them to remember something significant. And he says, for I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then he was buried, right? So he died, and then he was raised on the third day, which is what we celebrate at Easter. And so we begin to see that even within Scripture, it's like this is a very pivotal thing, that you cannot separate the reality of sin from what was done on the cross, that these two things are coinciding with uh, one another. Uh, Jesus does something fascinating, too, when he begins to talk. He's got his disciples around him, and um, his Fame is starting to grow, and his disciples are starting to ask a bunch of questions and are trying to figure out um, what this stuff is all about. And there's this really big um, moment that it begins like this kind of shifting moment in, in the Gospel of Mark, but, but even in Jesus' ministry. And he begins to talk to his disciples, and it's a powerful, powerful um, like little uh, teaching that Jesus does because he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So I want you to remember this part because we're going to come back to this at the end. So what Jesus is saying here is that in order to actually follow him, you have to take up your cross. If you aren't willing to take up your cross, then you aren't actually following him. So it's a, so it's a big thing. It's a, it's a really, really big thing, right? So now the, the question is like, what does it actually mean to take up your cross? And we'll, we'll talk about that today. Um, but he says, forever who wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever, uh, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit the soul? So he's saying here, what good is it for someone to get all the power they could possibly get but yet forfeit their soul? or all the leverage, or all the wealth, or all the things this world has to offer that are all going to go away. What good is it for you to do that? Because here's what you'll do. You'll forfeit following me. When, you're, when your whole mindset is like, I, those are the only things that I want. And he says, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them 
when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. This is like a thick passage, right? Here's what he's, he's saying, like, if anyone's ashamed of me, meaning like if anyone says like, oh, I don't want what Jesus taught, and I don't want that kind of kingdom of God, I'd rather shape the kingdom how I want to. And the only reason we want to shape the kingdom how we want to is because we're ashamed of the way that Jesus said to do it. Now, we don't talk about it in that way, but it's like, no, no, no. I'm ashamed of what Jesus taught here because I don't want to act that way or I don't, want to, I don't want to live that way. I don't want to love that way. I don't want to be that way. And then what Jesus says is like, listen, you can choose that. This is the, the beauty of all this. You can choose to go that route. But here's the thing, like someday then, then like I don't know you either. And so it's like heavy, right? Like this is like a thick, like, like daunting passage that Jesus is talking about of what it means to actually follow him. These are the types of passages that we like to skip over. These are the ones that we're like, oh yeah, I'll take up my cross, right? And it sounds good, you know, from kind of the Christian way. Like it sounds good and, and a, lot of, a lot of Christians have heard this, but it, these are the types of passages we actually skip over because of how deep they are and what they begin to mean. And so what it ends up doing is it calls our sin into to question because um, the, what can happen is church culture, um, it, can, it can be a lot of this. Take up your happiness. Take up your blessing. Take up your destiny. Take up your power. Right? You can take those things up, but we really don't want to take up our cross. Because to take up our cross is something so significant. To take up our cross requires so much sacrifice. To take up our cross means it's a reorientation of how we go about life. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's why this cross becomes like such a uh, really big deal. Now, sin's a really big deal um, for such a, for a three-letter word. It's so powerful, right? Um, when we think about sin, so the Bible lists some different sins, right? There's a bunch that they list. That, so the Bible would call like gossip sin, right? So um, let's just, we'll just do this all together. So the gossip is called what in the Bible? How many guys have gossiped? All right. The, the, um, the Bible calls lying what in the Bible? Have you lied? The, gospel, uh, the Bible calls um, lust a what? Have you lusted? Right. The Bible calls unrighteous anger a what? Has that ever happened to you? Bible calls, calls being self-righteous and judgmental a what? Sin. How many of us have done that? And so we see like the reality of sin. We see the, um, how it begins to work in our lives. And what's interesting is so often we um, only concentrate on the, the personal side. Um, but the Bible actually talks way more about the communal side. Um, how many guys have... Um, been a part of or participated in slavery? The true answer is basically all of us. Here's why, and this is how sin works, and this is what happens communally. Um, if you bought chocolate at any point in your life, you bought it from a company that actually enslaves people. Why does that happen? Because of sin. And so um, when this is why like fair trade became a thing and all that stuff, right? Well, what are they addressing? They're addressing sinful actions uh, of people. 
Um, if, you've, if you've bought things from companies that pollute the earth, what have we per- communally participated in? Sin. Because we're supposed to care for God's creation. And when we don't care for God's creation, it's a sinful act against God. And so we, we get to start seeing like the pervasiveness of sin. Um, we start seeing even things like, like war, right? Why, why does war happen? Listen, the, the idea of like people having to go to war to protect certain things, that's, I'm not talking about that, but why does war happen on the front end? Sin. And think about this, what happens to people even in the context of war. Um, like when, when, like say, let's just use this as an example. Like say we were at war with someone. We care a lot about American casualties, right? Which we should, of course. But we disregard the people we're fighting against. Is that the way Jesus taught us to think and act? No. So, so we see what sin can do in us, right? And even sometimes it, like, it feels okay. But, but, we, but we, man, the sin thing, like, whoa, it's a really big deal. And we see the way it rears its ugly head everywhere. And why the, the pervasiveness of sin that, that ends up happening is, is the reason why we miss out on it or don't understand the depth of it is because either we choose to be ignorant to it or we've become numb to it because we accepted it. And so, so we've got to, like, feel this. We've got to feel the depth of our sin. We've, we've got to, like, see it and understand it, right? Because if we don't, we'll never understand the cross. We won't understand the depth of it or, nor the beauty of it. And so here are a couple other things with sin. You guys might be feeling like, whoa, we have talked about sin a lot these last couple of weeks. Yes. So um, here's what I want us to do today, though. We need to see sin out of God's eyes, not our own. And this is really the crux of it. Too often um, we pare down sin so it's comfortable for us. We make it digestible for us. Um, because we don't want to really come to grips with the reality of what it's doing in our lives. And, and listen, every single person in this room, <laughs> including me for sure, um, we all sin, we all fall short. And um, we've got to stay sensitive to this and we've got to like understand what it's doing. And we've got to like think about it in the right way. You know, the Bible actually talks about sin in a very cosmic way too. You know, it isn't just like, oh, the individual little sin. It actually talks about a, a more cosmic, like, thing that's, like, working throughout culture and throughout the world. And so we need to see it through God's eyes in uh, the midst of this. And so I want to talk about, you know, even a couple of things here that what sin does to kind of increase our, our knowledge. Sin will have us buy into the way things are or cultural narratives. And here's what I mean by that. Um, you'll hear people say things... Um, like, well, I mean, it's just the way it is in our country. Or it's the way it is here. Or it's the way it is over there. Or boys will be boys. Or, man, you know how girls are. Like, like we, we have this language of, like, justification of things that aren't right. And what's behind all of that is, like, an acceptance and buying into, like, well, this is the way sin works. And so, like, we'll just kind of go along with that. And we just got to get on, like, it's just, just the way it is. You know, like, we just got to, we got to do that. You guys heard me say this before, like, um, like it was like, I understand this, so I'm not even like saying like um, that there's a way around, well, there is a way around this, but 
I understand where this thought comes from. Like when you hear people say like, well, it's the lesser of two evils. And we accept that, which is like, a, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because here's what we're saying. <laughs> that evil is just not as bad. But we're accepting evil. And I understand where it comes from. Like, I get it. But it's just a weird concept when we begin to, like, approach some of this stuff. And we kind of buy into things and we accept things the way they are. And what happens in the midst of that is, like, that's when we get duped. That's when we get confused. That's when we get played. You know, and people like leverage and market things and try and um, build fear and everything. I like all that stuff. It's like, how does that happen? Well, it's because we've bought into cultural narratives. We've bought into um, just the way things are, mentality. And the, the cross, actually, we'll see this at the end. Like the cross makes us or should make us like be repulsed by that thinking. It really should. Um, one of the things I wrote down with this is if our obedience is to, is to cultural narratives rather than the cross, then what we worship resides there as well. So if you think about it that way, that, like, man, I'm so concerned with cultural wars and cultural things and buying cultural narratives, and it's like, if that's what shapes me, so if, like, I get shaped by fear, if I get shaped by anger, if I get shaped by all this stuff... And, and, and what ends up happening is that's where my obedience is going as well because I'd rather obey the, the laws of the land or the cultural narratives. And that, when, that what that means is like my worship is going there too. And we can all fall prey to that. And so it's important to start thinking through like, whoa, are there, are there things in my life that that is a reality? Do I, do I feel that pull in that direction? because that's what sin wants to do in our lives. And so I actually think one way that we see this, um, and you might think this is crazy, but we actually see this in, in Scripture. I think, um, like, the church is going through a reckoning right now. Like, when I say church, I mean, like, whole, like kind of whole world church. Like, it's going through a reckoning, and we should be very thankful for that. Um, sometimes people are like, oh, my gosh, what's happening to the church? I'm like, no, this is actually, like, a beautiful thing. Like, the church going through a reckoning and God pruning what he needs to prune is a really, really healthy thing. Um, what's interesting is I think he's using the world to bring the reckoning. Here's what I mean by that. The world around us is calling us out of the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness of the church more than the church is actually calling itself out. And so the reason that that can happen is because the church got on the wrong path. I'm not saying everyone or every Christian. I'm just saying just in general, that got on the wrong path. And so the world is like, why are you on this path with us? You shouldn't be there. You shouldn't do that. And it's just calling out. And we've seen this in multiple ways over the past five years in particular. And it's like, man, church is like, that shouldn't be right. That shouldn't be right. That shouldn't be right. You shouldn't be here. But too often, Christianity is. And so, well, why is that? Because we've kind of gotten roped in and duped and confused and, and going down the wrong path and seeing like, whoa, I'm bought, really bought into cultural narratives and the way things are. Um, here's what else sin will always do. Sin will always be tempting, deceiving, dividing, and coercing. It will always be tempting, deceiving, dividing, and coercing. I'm not saying to be tempted is a sin. I'm saying what we will see is sin is always trying to tempt us into action, Okay. But what we see is what sin will always do is be deceiving, dividing, and coercing. Tempting, deceiving, dividing. So let me ask you this. When you look at the world around us, and we'll just take our 
country because that's easier. But when you, when you look at our country and the way things are in leadership in general, doesn't it feel like that? We're not, like, we're not coming together. We're not having fruitful conversations. What is it? It's, it's about division. It's about coercing, right? It's about deceiving um, one another. One of the ways that I think this can happen, and it's, an, I think, like an interesting way to think about this piece because it's so normative. Um, it's really easy to blame other generations for things, except your own, you know? I'm a Gen Xer, like as a Gen, how many other Gen Xers do we have in here? Yeah, yeah, man, not a lot. Um, but uh, we kind of get off scot-free a lot, y'all. Like we just kind of hover in no man's land all the time. Everyone talks about the boomers, everyone talks about the millennials and the Gen Zers, right? And the Gen Xers are just like, you know, like we're just in the middle of doing nothing. But it's easy to blame other generations, isn't it? This is what sin will do. This is what sin will do. You, you blame other generations for the mess. And then you don't confess and repent of how you're actually being a part of it. And so you become self-righteous, judgmental. That's what happens. And so, like, every generation is a problem or has a problem. Like, the older generations did screw things up. They did other things. They did things right, too. But they did. Like, they screwed things up. And guess what? To the younger generations, guess what you're doing right now? You're screwing things up. You're setting up the next grouping of generations to be like, why? In the same way Gen Z and younger millennials in particular are looking at older generations and be like, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Guess what's coming for you guys? The same thing. Why do we do this? You see, um, what's interesting in Scripture, uh, there's a lot of passages, in particular in the Old Testament, where generations and groupings of people are supposed to confess and repent of what happened before them. God actually calls this out on people all the time if you read through the Old Testament. Um, it's, a, it's a big process because here's what you end up doing. Have you ever heard of generational sin? That doesn't just automatically get, like, it doesn't automatically happen. The reason why generational sin happens is because no one steps in and confesses and repents, meaning confess and you repent. And what all repentance is, is is saying this, like, I no longer want to do what I want to do. I want to do what God wants me to do. Like, that's repentance, right? So you're, you're actually, you're, you're turning away. You're actively doing something else. And the reason why God says, hey, generations before you did this, I want you to step in and do this is because generational sin happens when people don't step in and be like, no, no, we want to confess what happens. We are repenting of that and we're turning and doing something else. If you don't do that, it just spins on itself. And so even right now, like I've been a part of a couple of different scenarios and I could, I won't, I've, been, I've heard some like powerful stories, but um, I've been a couple of different scenarios where even in our city, right, um, slave, we're at the, like the hub of slavery in our country and racism. So um, like we've been a part of a couple of different things where it's been like, hey, we want to confess and repent of the demonic nature of racism that is the underbelly of the city that still has a stronghold, that still tries to manifest itself. But the way that we have to do this is we have to confess of what has come before us, repent of it now, and be the people of action to do something different. That's how you break it. And so, but what sin do is like, no, no, just keep it normalized. 
And let me help you continue to coerce and tempt you and divide you and deceive you in it. And so what happens when we buy into it is like, well, I don't need to do that. I don't need to be a part of that. I don't need to do it. It's like, that's what sin wants us to think. So we become numb and ignorant to it. Never forget this part, that sin is what put Jesus on the cross. Sure, people put him up there, but sin is what actually got him there. So when we think about all of this in totality, then um, here is one way to think about it. To be in sin is to be disconnected from the freedom of Jesus and convinced your false self is the best version of who you are. This is part of my story. So um, part of my testimony is um, when I came back to Jesus, um, I was making some bad decisions in my life in general. But I will say this. I was also making a lot of good ones. Like I was making good money. I was a hard worker. I had good community. Um, I was having a lot of fun, right? But I was, I was thinking that the false self, the incomplete version was who I was supposed to be. But it wasn't until I discovered who God really is and who I'm really supposed to be that now I look back at those years of my life and been like, man, I was an idiot. Outsider looking in, it wasn't that bad. When I really look back, I'm like, I was an idiot. Because I bought into a false narrative, a false self. It's like, that's not who God uh, remotely desired me to be. And so when we think about this stuff, and um, you might be thinking to yourself, so this is why we talk about sin. Like, this, how many of you guys have ever been around, been around like a Christian and been like, you need to know you're a sinner, right? Or like, you gotta feel the depth, of, like you gotta feel that you're a sinner. And it's like, is it true? Yes, it's, it's true that we're all sinners. But the focus shouldn't be on the sin, it should be on the cross and in our Savior. And it's, it's a way that we begin to think about this stuff differently. So then what ends up happening is, like, conversationally, even with the cross, we start thinking, like, yeah, but did Jesus really have to die? Or did Jesus really have to go up on the cross? And, and here's why, why I want to just, like, why I've taken so much time to talk about sin these last couple weeks is because here's the truth about sin. When you think about it at its worst, it is shame, separation, and death. Like, that's the worst of sin. The worst of it, it's shame, it's separation from who you really are, separation from God, separation from people, and then death. And so get what Jesus does on the cross. The most shameful thing that was a part of that culture, Jesus goes into it up on the cross. The feeling of separation from his closest people, separation um, from like his own divinity to some degree, the separation from the, the understanding and feeling that and absorbing the weight of sin, you feel that separation from who you're supposed to be. And then death. So Jesus goes into all, the, the worst that sin has, Jesus went into it. And then he overcomes it by what? Being raised from the dead. And so why did Jesus have to die? Is because he had to go into the very worst components of it to defeat sin at its worst. Because every single sin requires some kind of cost. And so at its worst, he had to match it and then overcome it. And so that's what we see in the cross. And that's why all of a sudden it shifts that we see the depth of sin, but we see the beauty of the cross. So that's why it reshapes everything about us. That's why it reshapes our vision, our mission, our values, and our identity. But here's the thing. Um, we need to think about this part, too, because I, I want us to, to understand. We, here's how we think the Bible teaches about sin. We think it's this. Sin, repent, 
Um, then you get grace. Then you're forgiven. Right? That's typically how we think about it. Um, and sometimes even how it's taught within, within church. It's like, it works. You're, you're a sinner. You need to repent. God will give you grace. Now you're forgiven. But the Bible actually teaches this. Grace, sin, you're delivered. Um, then it's repent. Then you get grace again. It's a whole different way to talk about it. And let me use this in my life. As I said, there was a lot of my life I was having fun, I was making good decisions, making good money, blah, 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 all that stuff, right? I didn't realize where I was at till I understood what God's grace really was. You are not aware of your sin to understand his grace. You're not. Until you understand the depth of his grace and the amount of grace you receive, you will never understand sin. Because this is when people, maybe you've said this, maybe you're saying it right now. No, I'm good. I'm good. It's not that bad. I'm fine. I want to do it's not that bad. Like, it's fine. What is that? You don't understand the fullness of God's grace in your life. When you begin to see the depth of grace, the beauty of grace, what happened on the cross and resurrection, you understand, whoa, that, I can't fathom that. Then you begin to see, like, whoa, look at my sin. And then when you're working through grace, here's what happens. It's like, whoa, I understand my sin, but I want to be delivered from this sin and freed from this sin. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to confess and repent of this sin. And then when I confess and repent of this sin, guess what you get on the backside of that? Grace again. Because we're all on a journey and we're not perfect. And so it's important then to see like, whoa, when I begin to understand the cross, it's like unbelievable the grace that happened up on that cross. And so then that allows me to realize the depth of my own sin, the depth of sin in reality, and I want to be delivered and freed from that. So I do want to confess and repent of it because then I know I'm going to need grace again because I'm a work in progress. And it changes the way we think, and that's why it becomes so pivotal to us understanding the truth of who Jesus is in the midst of this. One way to think about it is this way. We won't become aware of our sin until we appreciate the beauty of grace we find in Jesus. We won't become aware of our sin until we appreciate the beauty of grace we find in Jesus. So we repent out of grace, right, not out of guilt. So I will never try to make you feel guilty about something. I want to point you to the grace and hope of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. And my hope is that then we begin to understand our sin. Could I make you feel guilty? That's not hard. It isn't. I was in sales for a lot of years. I can sell it. I could easily make you feel guilty, but that doesn't change anything. What I want you to see is the beauty of his grace. Because if you can just see the beauty of his grace, you will realize the depth of your sin. And you'll want to be freed from it. And then you'll want to experience a life in freedom in his grace. Um, when you begin to see his grace in the story, here's this, this man, the story of the cross is so wild, y'all. Like, the grace of Jesus, right? He's got criminal Criminals on either side of him. Do you remember what happens with the one criminal? What is he? he sees something in Jesus. Now, part of the story is that the criminals were insulting him as well. But the one criminal sees something in Jesus 
What is that? There's just something gracious about him. There's something about Jesus. And he recognizes his own sin, wants to be free from, the, from his own sin and the depth of his own sin. So what does he cry out to Jesus? Hey, remember me. And what does Jesus give him? Grace. At the foot of the cross, the centurion is sitting there, been part of people who put him up there and literally nailed him to the cross, was one of the murderers. At one point, what does he do? He's at the foot of the cross and something happens and he sees Jesus for who he really is. And what does he realize in that moment? Woe am I. I want that. I want that in my life. I want to be freed. I want to repent. I want to, I want to have that in my life. This truly must be the son of God. Grace. So get what Jesus does on that cross. This is why it's so powerful. He gives grace to the victim, right, around him. He identifies with the poor, the suffering, and everything. We see that. But he also gives grace to the perpetrator. It's huge. It's massive. So then on the cross, we see hope, we see justice, we see love, we see sacrifice, we see victory. We see the very reason to question the way things are. So now all of a sudden when we say, I'm going to take up my cross, it feels a little different. It means a little bit more. We begin to say like, whoa, in order for me to take up my cross, then my life has to what? Imitate what Jesus did on that cross. So then I become a person of grace. I become a person of hope, of love, of justice. I become the kind of person that's like, I want to question the way things are because this just isn't right. I become the kind of person that like wants to build the kingdom of God, not my own. And it changes everything. Sin no longer has the last word. The cross does. Sin does not um, become our default position. The cross becomes our default position. So it, t it changes everything in us. Now, you might be thinking, okay, I get all that, but if that worked, why does sin and evil still happen? And why do I still, like, sin? And, and why is that part of, like, what the reality of what I see? Come back next week. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> but here's, I just want to get us to a, a starting point here as we close. I want to, like, get us to process together. In the times that you've confessed and had times of confession, and maybe even repentance, was it out of guilt or was it because of the beauty of the grace of Jesus? In the moments that you've prayed, God, please forgive me, was it because of guilt? Or was it because this deep conviction inside of you is like, whoa, I can't even, this, what Jesus did up on that cross, holy cow. And I realize. I can't be this person. There's more to it. There's more freedom. There's just more to this life. You might have had a moment where you, maybe you're on the more like emotional side and everything's just been like, you just felt the emotion and maybe you need to pause and think for a second. <laughs> Do I really understand the depth of this cross? Or maybe you're more on like the thinker side, right? And you're just like, man, you analyze everything. Da, 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 da. It's like, maybe you need to feel this. And what it could mean for your life, your relationships, your perspective. Are you a person of hope, of justice, of love, of mercy, of grace? 
of living out of victory rather than defeat and shame. You will be, and the cross is your identifier and your centering point of who you're supposed to be in your life. So I want you guys to just process that for a second. We're going to sing here one last song. God, this morning, um, as we're about to sing that you are a living hope, these words that we're about to sing can't be true in our lives until we understand the beauty of what happened on the cross. We understand how large your grace is. These words won't be true until we begin to truly identify with you and your kingdom and not be ashamed of that. So God, I pray that um, we would know the depth of our sin because we understand the beauty of the cross. That we would know what you have for our lives to be people of love and hope and justice and grace and mercy and walking in victory, to be people that won't buy in the cultural narratives. I pray that we would know and understand that like that comes through taking up our cross to truly follow you and put all other things aside. Will you stand and sing this last song with us?